coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. 18 plus, you can now register for a vaccination. Is a workplace resignation boom coming? The liberals and conservatives are neck and neck. Is there a federal election coming soon? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Social media has made it impossible to keep my dad's birthday a secret anymore. Happy birthday, you old fart. Busted. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. up in my car and I'm going to fall off the stage here. Uh, good afternoon. It is 12-11. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, hang on a sec. i got to tile this. Uh, I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes as we enter uh, week number 61. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Uh, go to the website. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. Want to play you a report now uh, from Sandy Salerno, Global News. This is in regard to now, as of tomorrow. 18 plus thumbs up stand in line start registering because you're going to get your jab listen to this this was supposed to be the week that people as young as 30 would be able to start booking their vaccine appointments but today the province announced they were ahead of schedule on their rollout all thanks to getting an early delivery so this means starting tomorrow morning at eight o'clock everyone 18 and older will be able to sign up bookings can be made on the province's web portal and call center or right through individual public health units 17 year olds who are set to turn 18 this year will also be included but they will only be able to book a spot for a pfizer shot this comes as the province changes up how it doles out vaccines for the past couple of weeks half of the supply went to COVID-19 hotspots like Toronto and Peel but the government's now going back to distributing it on a per capita basis. Sandy Salerno, Global News. All right let's bring in Paul Johnson, director of the Emergency Centre for the City of Hamilton, been manning this ship since the storm started. Paul, good to see you, good to talk to you, how are you doing? And this is great news, I guess, all around as more vaccines come in and we start to expand things. Well, thanks, guys. It's, uh, yeah, it has been a long haul, but days like today are, are good days. Uh, you know, it's been, it's been, quite frankly, fairly complicated, and you and I have gone through this many times where I've said, look, if you, if you have the better part of an hour, I can tell you all the eligibility guidelines, but uh, the yeah. best thing is to do it on the website. Now it's becoming a whole lot easier. So as of 8 o'clock tomorrow morning, uh, if you're an adult in the province of Ontario, you're eligible to book. You're also eligible to book through the provincial online booking tool, which is the best and most effective way to get into a clinic. No more waiting on our phone lines. No more uh, uh, fighting that battle. Uh, just go in and, and, and book. So great news. Uh, as your report mentioned, uh, more supply coming in. The supply, in this case, coming a little bit earlier, which allows the province to make that move. And uh, couldn't be more welcome on the local front, for sure. All right, let's talk about Hamilton numbers. They seem to be showing a good sign as well. They are. They're trending, uh, trending lower, and, and so that's the good news. Uh, I would say that it's a slow progression down, and that's why we continue to say to folks, uh, you know, 
that, that I think there was general support for extending the stay-at-home order. We need to continue to do the work uh, for, for those of us that, uh, you know, can really limit our movements and work from home. We need to continue to do that. We want to see these numbers go down. I mean, we're still, we're celebrating that we're seeing, you know, uh, cases of 120 per day uh, um, uh, over over the course of a week and things like that. But recognize that there was a time where we would have been panicking with those numbers. Those are pretty high. There's still a large number of people who are hospitalized, including those in ICU across the province. And so that number needs to come down a lot lower. But the good news is this is a continued and steady trend downwards. And uh, that's what uh, the stay-at-home order was meant to do. It seems to be working. And the other good news is that allows us to get more and more vaccine into people's arms, which will also help. So obviously uh, another good week as far as vaccines coming into uh, the province and such. Are you going to see, are you going to see that uh, a visible uptick in what you're doing in, in, um, in the clinics that you're running now? Yeah, it is expected. This will help us continue to build our capacity, uh, which we have uh, quite a bit of, particularly our mass vaccination sites. We have the capacity to, uh, uh, to vaccinate more people on a daily basis. We've really been running at a, a fairly throttled down capacity, uh, particularly at First Ontario Centre. So this will allow that to expand. Uh, we do expect our numbers uh, to go up in terms of our allocation locally. Two reasons for that. One is a change in back to a per capita basis only for the way vaccine is distributed to communities. We were receiving some uh, additional vaccine for hotspots, but when you have, uh, you know, basically most of Peel covered by a hotspot, there was more vaccine going there for very good reason. This will balance that out, help us accelerate a little bit, and then just the general increase in the amount of vaccine that's coming in is, uh, is, is good news. So we'll be using all avenues and encouraging people to use all avenues as pharmacies pivot uh, to having um, moving away from AstraZeneca for the pause on that to other vaccines, they'll be available. Our clinics will be available in terms of mobile and pop-up. And then the seven-day-a-week operation and our three mass vaccination sites will continue. And by the way, for anybody wondering, uh, we do not take a break over the long weekend coming up. We will continue to offer vaccine right through uh, the Victoria Day weekend. And what are the three mass vaccination sites again? Uh, two are operated by our hospital partners, one at uh, the St. Joe's site, which is on the mountain, so the West 5th location. Uh, the other at uh, uh, well called the General Hospital Campus uh, down on Wellington Street through Hamilton Health Sciences. And then, of course, the city-run uh, facility at First Ontario Centre. So those three sites are where, uh, you know, at peak performance, you could see between you know, 8,000 to 8,500 doses a day flowing through through those three places alone. And then the other uh, amounts that get us up to more of a 10,000 a day routine uh, would happen through some of our mobile clinics and our pop-up clinics, which are more locally based. They offer a slower pace of people through. They're typically 100 to 200 people that will get through a day, as opposed to something like a First Ontario that could get 2,500 to 3,000 through a day. Uh, but they are also some places where people might find it more comfortable to go. And they're also the places that we've been targeting to certain communities. Our indigenous communities, a good example, black and racialized communities have uh, had specific locations where they can sign up and go uh, that may be more comfortable for them. But the other side is starting tomorrow, everybody will be able to book at any clinic that's on our, on our booking tool. Uh, so you can have the choice uh, that might get you in a little faster or you can wait for some of these mobile and pop-up clinics, maybe a little bit of a longer wait, but they may be more uh, comfortable for people to attend. 
Uh, obviously, the province, as of tomorrow, lowering the age to 18-plus, as you've mentioned. Does this provide any more of a challenge, put any more strain on the system? Because it is, although it's easier to understand because it's pretty much open to everybody now, 18-plus. Uh, does that put any more strain on your system? Uh, strain, not so much. In fact, in, in a good way, it's going to get us up to the performance that we were hoping for. I mean, we, we built our mass vaccination sites to do a certain amount, and they haven't been uh, at that level. So when we say we're full, we're full to the appointments we can book in, but we have capacity for extra. So I think in that case, it's going to be a good news story. And for the people working in those clinics, I think they'll feel they're really uh, able to, to, to work at peak performance performance. I think the pressure it puts on all of us is, though, that uh, everybody wants that vaccine tomorrow. They want to be able to book in. If they go tomorrow, they want to be booked in for Wednesday or Thursday. That's unlikely to happen. And so patients will be there to say, you'll you'll get an appointment, and ultimately all people who want a vaccine will have access to it. But that appointment may be into June, uh, and in some cases into the later parts of June. Uh, So folks will have to be a bit patient. That puts some pressure on, because there are those that uh, are obviously very, very keen to get this and and as well they should be but uh, our capacity on a day-by-day basis and a week-by-week basis is still constrained to some degree by the amount of vaccine that's that's coming in Uh, we'll be able to take more people but you still will have to have patience for exactly when you'll get in and uh, this is just Pfizer and Moderna at these sites correct uh, yeah, there is a provincial pause uh, right now on AstraZeneca, and uh, Dr. Richardson mm-hmm. just updated the Board of Health this morning that uh, the provincial and federal folks are are uh, taking a pause. They're looking at the data, and they'll provide in the in the near future some some guidance and advice uh, to people people like myself. Uh, my first dose was AstraZeneca, and uh, I'll need some advice right. as to what happens with my second dose when I'm eligible for that. That's coming. Really, the first uh, the first phase of second doses of AstraZeneca isn't until June, so there aren't people that are that are um, having that yeah. first dose uh, worry. So uh, that advice will come out before the second dose strategy starts to roll out, uh, and and we can expect that. But that's not something we set locally. That's something that's done uh, provincially. So yes, Moderna and Pfizer, uh, that's where we're seeing the increasing amounts of uh, of vaccine, and those will be available at multiple sites. Uh, what about uh, pharmacies and doctor's offices with this as a result? Now we're just using Pfizer and Moderna. And as you mentioned, the AZ is, has been on pause. So what, where does that leave pharmacies and doctor's offices? Any idea? Yeah, the province has said they'll, they'll begin to pivot to, uh, to the use of, of other vaccines. Really, uh, you know, Scott, the long-term sustainable piece of this is to use the, the infrastructure that we use to deliver all sorts of, of uh, other vaccination programs. The, most, uh, the one we're most familiar with, of course, uh, in a general sense, is, is the flu vaccine. So those that, right. are, that are eligible and certified to deliver uh, those types of immunization programs, that's the long-term. Uh, we still have a period of time, though, because we have a, a first dose to get through and then obviously the second dose to get through. We're going to need things like mass vaccination sites and mobile sites. But at long term, it's about pharmacies. Uh, the role of primary care, I think, still being worked out a little bit. But certainly the pharmacy system is there because it's been there for us in terms of delivering vaccine. Uh, it just hasn't been, obviously, COVID-19 in the past. Uh, so they're they're there. And I think as we move forward into the fall and then into future years, uh, they'll definitely play a role there. Uh, obviously, over the uh, you know the last year and a bit that we've been uh, consumed with this, there's been various uh, challenges depending on where we are. At this point, Paul, where we are, what's your challenge now? What's your biggest challenge as you're moving forward? 
Uh, biggest challenge on the COVID-19 front is just holding on for, uh, you know, a few more weeks to really drive those numbers down. We want to have a good summer. Uh, we want children in particular to have lots of activity and opportunities in the summer. And then, of course, uh, for adults as well, lots of opportunities to do things. We want the economy to start to open up and uh, and do so safely. So I will say that as much as it's great news and the trending and all the rest, again, uh, we're still talking about uh, yesterday over 120 cases in in a single day. These are these are high numbers. We need to get them down and we need to get them down seriously. So the challenge is with all the fatigue, with the nice weather coming around and everything else, uh, how do we hold on for, uh, you know, a number of, of weeks still? And then the other side is just churn, churn, churn through the vaccine program and really encourage people to uh, to do the thinking individually. If they need to reach out to a health professional to have a conversation, do so. But don't ignore vaccination. Don't say, well, you know, maybe sometime in five, six months from now, I'll think about it. Think about it now. Do the thinking you need to do. Uh, research whatever you need to do. Have conversations with appropriate people. But get yourself prepared to get vaccinated. It is the way that uh, that we see some significant move forward, particularly as we head into the fall. Um, and then the last challenge that uh, I'll say we're dealing with right now is working with the school boards uh, to determine how we're going to vaccinate those who are 12 to, uh, uh, through 17. And yeah. uh, that's some work that we're not doing alone. The school board's deeply involved, obviously, in that uh, process. And we want to make sure that those students are vaccinated you know, into June and then again in August so that they start the school year uh, with the two doses that they require as well. And that's, of course, through the Pfizer vaccine. So lots of things on the go. Uh, some are the really happy things to deal with. How are we vaccinating more people? The other tough side is how do we just keep that, keep hold of our behavior for a few more weeks, Scott, uh, so that we can drive these numbers down and have less of a risk of transmission in our community. Yeah, you know, you bring up, you, you sort of think like there really is no finish line here. I mean, because everybody's, where's the finish line? Where's the light at the end of the tunnel? But you bring up a valid point. You know, here we are, we're talking about the vaccine and how many people have are now are eligible and, you know, we're moving forward and there's more and more coming in. And then it's like, oh, yeah, the kids, <laughs> when school starts in September, you, there's a whole other offshoot of this to, you know, to get up and running for, for September. So, yeah, there's a little bit of work out the other end, too, isn't there, Paul? There is, uh, there's, there's always something brewing. But as I say on that front, you know, this is really good news. Uh, people yeah. were a little bit, uh, you know, concerned of when we would have a strategy for younger age populations, and uh, and so we we hit the ground running with that first tranche of of young people, and then you know below 12. I know there's also some some trials going on and some work that will happen. So yeah, this this piece of vaccination work does have many tentacles to it, more work that has to be done. But if you think about it, if we're really looking by the end of the summer uh, to have a really good coverage of first and second doses in a large portion of the adult population and in that 12 to 12 to 17, 18 range as well, uh, that would be some tremendous news heading into the fall where we can expect things to start to get back to more of a business as usual. And when I say that, I mean business as usual with COVID-19 in our community. Um, yeah. It's not going to disappear entirely. It's going to be, though, held in, at, a, at a level where, uh, you know, it'll be much lower in terms of cases. But the other side is, is that with the vaccination program, uh, far less risk from a serious illness, hospitalization or death perspective. And ultimately, that's the good news that we're all looking for. Paul Johnson with us, director of the Emergency Center, City of Hamilton. Obviously, good news, but the protocol still sticks, and we got to keep pushing to, to get across the finish line, wherever that is. Paul, thanks for the time, as always. Be well, and uh, keep rowing. Thanks for your time. You bet.
Here is today's daily commentary. Great news in the battle against COVID-19. More and more Canadians are willing to get the jab and hopefully put this nightmare behind us. New Abacus data reveals those who had the shot or are going to get it as soon as able at 71%. That is up from 63% just a few weeks ago. The rest want to wait and see, and there's others that just don't want it. The hesitancy centers around the mixed messaging between the federal government's Health Canada and the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, and no wonder. As a result, 85% of us prefer Pfizer because that's what NACI said. AstraZeneca is last between the even-to-be-distributed Johnson & Johnson sitting at 40%. No doubt the mixed messaging has contributed to vaccine hesitancy. However, the lack of supply until the last month has made this life-saving vaccine a commodity. And as with anything, a short supply means increased demand, which has hopefully detracted away from hesitancy here, leaving us little choice but to get the first vaccine available to us. Unlike the United States, who are awash in vaccine, and now hesitancy is setting in. Whereas here, we simply don't have the luxury of enough vaccine to be hesitant. We want out. I'm Scott Thompson. All right, you can tell by the great big C, you know who's coming in. Great big Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies, managing director of Abacus Data, and is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Well, you know, every time you play that great big C, it brings me closer, at least emotionally, to Newfoundland and Labrador while I'm still locked here in Ontario. So thank you, Scott. Any idea when you will uh, break the Atlantic bubble? When you do, when you will, you get back home? Well, they got to restart it first. They're going to, and then because of some outbreaks in Nova Scotia, that's that, that's been slowed. I, I, I mid July is a guess that could be a possibility. That's that's what I'm hoping for, my friend. Surprised they're talking about opening the U.S.-Canada border now. Are they are in talks to do that? I think they have to. You know, I, I think yeah. people uh, subconsciously and consciously have to get there. I mean, we can't stay locked down forever. We may not be going fast enough, but we are going in the right direction. We have to get back to normal. So better that some of this is getting leaked and people can start to accept that what was once normal 15 months ago hopefully will begin to be normal again. All right. uh, Also news over the weekend, Major General Danny Fortan uh, steps down from his role as uh, being the the vaccination guru uh, due to allegations from 30 years ago. Your thoughts on this as uh, we continue to hear more and more of these stories? Well, it's it's just another blow to the military. Um, How many senior leaders is that now? Four or five, two chiefs of defense staff. The head of the special forces was asked to step down, not because there was an allegation against him, but he had written a letter in support of somebody who had one before, the head of HR, now General Fortin. I think I'm missing some some there, maybe, but you're... God, it just has to shake the confidence Canadians have in the armed forces. On this specific one... I mean, I find this fascinating that the allegation is 32 years old. That is So what does that say? Because, again, that's the first thing that stood out for me is he exposed himself in military college 30, over 30 years ago. Again, don't mean to, to downplay any yeah, sort of, uh, of sexual misconduct, misogyny, what have you. Um, but, yeah, that, that, that sent up a note to me. Why, why, are we, why is that flagging for us? Uh, I, I don't know other than that. Again, we don't know the details, so it's really hard to make yeah. commentary without knowing the details and sounding, uh, 
insensitive or ill-attuned, but I guess the initial mm-hmm. gut reaction is, and maybe that is true for many of us who were, you know, in university 30 years ago, you probably do some self-reflection. You probably wonder, you know, what what the behavior precisely was to know if it's um, something, well, to the person who was reporting it, obviously it's a serious thing, but when you think of things that happen in university, I think you guess you can ground them within yourself yeah. and wonder why it, it, 32 years later, and there could be lots of legitimate psychological reasons as to why it's now coming forward today, and mm-hmm. I, I guess we need more details because it's not fair to offer criti- criticism or, um, or, or or comment any other way till we know more details. Uh, but obviously, uh, away from this specific case, the military in general has an awful lot of work to do to, to fix this. Well, and, and the strange things so go to the politics of it, right? And again, these things all seem to predate his watch. Um, but why is Harjit Sajjan still the Minister of Defense mm-hmm. six years into this. He's not changed his role. If accountability begins at the top, and you can say that, um, you know, where Sajjan may have failed, where the Liberal government may have failed, is not acting quick enough on uh, the Marie Deschamps report because they're now commissioning a second report. I, I, I think it's going to be really hard for the Prime Minister to keep Minister Sajjan in there. Uh, he doesn't want to go to a potential election in the late summer, early fall with that same minister there and answering a series of questions around it. So whether they're deserved or not, um, symbolically, Sajjan is probably not destined to be the minister for much longer because of the need to demonstrate accountability. Uh, any more reflective on the prime minister who's a self-proclaimed feminist? We've had this discussion before. It just doesn't look good, right? Um, because, again, people are going to say, again, not knowing all the facts, all right, so you put the, the most important thing in this country right now is vaccine rollout. So the person overseeing vaccine rollout uh, now has been alleged to have done something, albeit 32 years ago, but it, it apparently is related to um, some form of sexual misconduct. And I use that again in very broad terms, not knowing all the details, but that is what CTV is reporting at the moment. Um, some people will ask, well, you talk a good game. Don't you do any checking? Now, maybe to be fair to the government, and this is a line of defense for them, you know, would a screen have picked up things from 32 years ago? And would that screen have even, would that screen have even recognized that this was a, compl- a matter of complaint? Well, not uh, if they still. didn't even notice Vance. How could they? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, but still, you know, you're, you're, again, again accountability. You're the prime minister. Um, so the guy who, who we've all come to know now uh, in the news just about every day and every night is uh, is now gone. It also creates some anxiety around how vaccine rollout's going to go, because at least it appeared for 10 the last few weeks and the federal government had started to get their act together. And now, you know, Ontario has lost Rick Hillier, uh, Forte has gone from Canada. Um, does that jeopardize vaccine delivery? doesn't seem to, but uh, if it starts to, people will, again, not be very happy. All right, let's talk about, uh, talk about this latest abacus data showing the liberals and the conservatives uh, virtually neck and neck. Are you surprised at this? A little bit, because a month, and so that's our firm. A month ago, they, the Liberals had an 11-point lead. Um, there hasn't been one precipitating incident per se, but 
regardless, and, and as we dove into the data, it, because there hasn't been one incident, it's hard to say, all right, what particularly is causing this this uh, this data to read as it does at the moment. That aside, if you're the liberals, and again, you're plotting election strategy in the fall, and you think you're, you're comfortable, this data says, oh, don't get too cocky, guys. You're not as well positioned as you think. The, the numbers went up for the, or sorry, the numbers went down for the Liberals in Atlantic Canada and the Prairies. Now, thing with that is that doesn't necessarily mean that's a real electoral impact, though the Liberals will, if they start to lose seats in more uh, seats in Atlantic Canada, which has traditionally been a hotbed, then they will worry. And the Prairies, you know, they don't have much to lose. Um, for them, what's also interesting in this poll is they still do okay in Ontario. Uh, and Quebec when compared to the other two national parties, and they're tied in B.C. So, you know, Justin Trudeau doesn't have to make a layup if he wants to win the next election. He's going to have to do some work, as this data demonstrates. Uh, so is this his loss or conservative gain, a bit of both? O'Toole isn't picking up much in this data. Yeah. I mean, the party went up to – I mean, the conservatives seem to be kind of in this range, Scott, of 28 to 32. Uh, if you dive into leadership impressions, O'Toole's, which are an important barometer, O'Toole's negatives still outweigh his positives. He's got to mm-hmm. change that around. O'Toole's, um, the desire for change is not as significant as you would like it to be if you're Aaron O'Toole. So, you know, this might just be a bit of spring blues, people mad at more lockdowns, but O'Toole hasn't been able to capitalize on that. So he's got to find a way to, to, to do that. And there's no no other way probably than hard work and, and hoping the Liberals continue to slip and uh, slowly edging the, the, the numbers up. And maybe that's what the Liberals are looking at, too, when they calculate the, do the calculation on the spring ele- or fall election, late summer election is, okay, it's still going to take him time to get popular. This is why we need to go. So even though we're not shooting the lights out, he's not either. So maybe it will be, as the old saying goes, mm. the devil you know as opposed to the one you don't. So is it that Aaron O'Toole is not resonating, uh, people don't know him, or is they don't like him? They know him, they don't like him. It's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. I mean, he's not scoring very well with conservatives in Alberta, uh, and that has to be worrisome, because as you and I have talked about on your show often before, I mean, a threat to the conservatives in Alberta is the Maverick Party, right? So if they don't like O'Toole and they hate Trudeau, maybe they warm to the Maverick. That that benefits Trudeau, not O'Toole, because they start to take seats away potentially from conservatives. Um, they're also not too struck on his, some of his own voters. Like Conservatives aren't enthused about Aaron O'Toole to the degree that he would like. And he, you know, maybe that's because he's making some change right now and they haven't seen the benefit of the change, but th- that has to be concerning for him. He's not done by any stretch of the imagination. He, of course, has a fair degree of runway, but uh, like many opposition leaders, his hill to climb uh, is higher than Trudeau's to slip down off of. Hmm. Um, uh, Fascinating. NDP sitting at 17%, which is kind of where they always are. Uh, Yet uh, Jagmeet Singh is, is, is very popular. How do you explain that? 
I, I think of all the leaders, he's the one probably that comes across as the most genuine. And you can afford to like Jagmeet Singh. You just don't vote for him, right? <laughs> so when you're asked <laughs> by a bolster, who do you like? Uh, Singh might be the, of the four, the five, excuse me, putting Anime Paul in there. Canadians don't really know. He's the one who comes across maybe more uh, m- more realistically to you. Or if you were and in Quebec, Blanchette, right? He, he, he's like that. So... Again, if you're O'Toole, you're kind of, if you can't quite be Stephen Harper, but you're a bit more like, you know, as in people don't like you, but they'll still vote for you. Uh, and you don't necessarily have the prime minister's um, connection with enough voters to carry you over. You're still kind of feeling out your identity. So you'd like to get some of the people who find Singh authentic to find you authentic so you can get them to consider voting conservative. And that not happening yet. Doesn't mean it won't, just not happening yet. Uh, we, you know, we've said uh, many times on this show uh, that uh, this liberal party seems to be moving more and more and more to the left. And, and at times you can't tell, you know, they're, they're eating the NDP's lunch. Um, is that why the NDP are sitting at 17 percent? And so have they done their job in sort of neutralizing uh, the NDP or do they need to go down this rabbit hole? Do they need to be chasing the NDP the way they always seem to? Uh, no, I think, look, and it can, you got to look at it regionally, right? The danger with national polls is certain areas will, will, will skew what's happening. Yeah. So just go to BC where the, where there's a tie. So the liberals really need to do well in BC, right? They, they really need to take out Mr. Singh because if Mr. Singh picks off seats, um, that they're interested in in BC, then, uh, then Trudeau doesn't get his majority and maybe he's in some weird minority configuration. And today, I gather, according to our colleague, Evan Solomon, Abby Lewis is going to announce as he's running for the NDP as a son of Stephen Lewis broadcaster, as you know, announcing mm-hmm. he's running for the NDP in a seat they can win. So if Singh starts to pick up a few of these star candidates, keeps the numbers close for or tied for the NDP in BC, you know, that's frankly more important than any polling number he gets in Atlantic Canada or the prairies where he's not competitive. For Singh to be successful, he has to pull seats in Ontario, BC, couple of places in Quebec, one or two in the Atlantic, and he can still be as influential as they think they are and apparently are in the current parliament. Uh, 41% approve, 41 disapprove of how the federal government is handling things. Is, is this just still too, too fine a line to, to call yet? I mean, things can drastically change even between now and the summer. Usually you're in trouble when that number's in the 60 range, right? It's 60% mm-hmm. disapproval and it's tie in line with 60% of people who want change. So if you're in the 40s, you're not too bar bothered yeah. by it. To be blunt, right now, too, it's kind of a reflection of reality, right? Like I'm sitting out in my back deck talking to you right now, looking at the canoe on my roof because I want to go canoeing. And I know I can do that, but I can only go in a 10 or 15 kilometer radius because, God forbid, I cross the bridge. So for the moment that I get it all ready and ready to go, I'm happy. And the other half of the time, I'm frustrated. It, it fits yeah. the mood of yeah. the day, right? We're kind of in, kind of out. And I think Trudeau is hoping that the, the mood upwards will come as we get to July, and that so-called 75-20 scenario plays itself out. Uh, obviously, election coming. We can see that in, in, in announcements that are made uh, this morning. Prime Minister announcing uh, more money for the Indigenous community and also uh, climate change, hiring 2,000 energy advisors. Um, 
Sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but no, because I mean. honestly, that's well. I'm shaking my head, Tim. You're laughing, so I think we're both coming at at this from the same uh, same vantage point. Like, man, th- this is just increasing the uh, the size of government. What what's the sense in doing this? And look, what reports are saying about the size of government? It's a burden on the look. Probably you may be, you may need a few. I don't know if you need two thousand. And where are we living most of our lives right now? Online, if we're not out lucky enough to do something outdoors, do we not have the ability? Because we often lot it to put a lot of this information online and make it effective. Do we need two thousand people to do that? I don't want to take jobs away from people, but maybe there's other jobs created or actually managed by people uh, in the IT departments of government departments right now it it just seems gimmicky see and you've hit on something interesting scott i think this is trudeau's vulnerability where the conservatives and others may be able to get at him is if the investments in not 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 carbon pricing but if the investments around energy efficiency and the like look like a big government build and a waste of money because they're not really going to address problems he becomes potentially vulnerable in some areas that he, in, in with some voting groups that uh, he he needs to be careful with. And there's always chatter of setting new targets, which always comes with lots of pomp and circumstance. But we don't really seem to hit the old target. So you know, you chuckled when you heard this. Is this sort of thing? Again, you know, we were just talking in a post-pandemic world. Uh, the old "fake it till you make it" thing doesn't work anymore. I mean, are, are people wanting their leaders to be more accountable than this? Yes, and I'm sure if you said you were hiring two thousand new public health nurses to get people vaccinated, that would be met with cheers, right? Yeah. Because that is the immediate thing right now. We all want our lives back. So, uh, again, you as a government, you have to look forward and you have to be 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 doing all of that. But uh, it just, I don't know. I didn't see the announcement, but it it seems a, a bit off. Is, uh, is he waltzing to a majority? Well, not if you read our data today, but look, I would say this. I mean, that's the, the for what it's worth, uh, the anecdotal suggestion and different polls have suggested that that is certainly possible. But as we saw in the last election with a really weak conservative leader, Justin Trudeau was held to a minority. Now, had that leader not been so weak, maybe he loses because of all of the mess that Trudeau was embroiled in at the time. Um, oh, you know, I, I guess you could say this about O'Toole right now. Uh, he's certainly underestimated. Um, mm. So, you know, as was the case with Singh last time, a, a good performance and some breaks that go his way, maybe get him a better shot at holding Trudeau to a minority or even getting a minority himself. I don't see how the Conservatives win a majority, but it's, what, May 17th today, and we're talking about that. Today, you would have to say yes, Scott, long way to get answer your question. Trudeau likely wins a majority, but we're probably not voting any time before middle of September. Good point. Tim Powers with us, chairman of Summa Strategies, managing director of Abacus Data, liberals and conservatives, uh, back to pretty much even Stephen at this point. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Take care, my friend. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
Let's bring in David McDonald, senior economist with the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. The uh, article on globalnews.ca, a workplace, uh, workplace resignation boom may be looming, and here's why. David, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. There seems to be a lot of rumblings about this stuff going on, but nobody's really, from a management perspective, is is saying much. But you have to wonder, there's lots of big boardroom meetings going on and, and wondering how we're going to get out of this. Uh, what big shift do you sense coming post-pandemic? Well, since the pandemic started, there were really two particular months where we saw huge boosts in the number of people leaving the labor force uh, because, in general, they were dissatisfied with their work for a variety of reasons. Um, one was in the first month of the pandemic, which was March of 2020. Uh, and the second one was in September uh, of 2020, um, whereas people going back to school. And so these were the first two, and they might give us some indication of what we're likely to see um, going forward. I mean, the, the people leaving in March was, was almost certainly related to health in some way, either of themselves or of their families and being concerned about that. Uh, these aren't people who were laid off. These are people who left because they, you know, they had a job and they left of their own accord because they didn't, uh, for, for a variety of reasons, but it was likely health related in some way. Um, and then the, the, the big, uh, uptick in September, uh, was due to people going back to school. Uh, and so these might give us some indication of what people might be looking for, be concerned about um, that might push them out of the uh, out of the job market. Uh, the first is health. Uh, and so if they or, uh, you know, someone they live with, uh, parents, children uh, have some underlying health condition that, that, that they couldn't get immunized for some reason. I mean, this is certainly a reason why people might want to seek out other jobs. Um, and the other might be employment. So it might be that people decide that the job that they're in uh, maybe has seen a lot of disruption over the course of the last year. Um, and maybe it's an industry they, they don't want to be in anymore. And so it's potential they might go back to school, get trained, different profession, different area, so they can go work uh, in another place. And I think these are probably two of the big reasons why uh, people might uh, might give up work at this point. It, it, it's, it's hard to, to think how we can't change in some way. First few months of this, yeah, yeah, no problem. We've got this, can handle it in, out. Uh, but once it drags on for this, amount of time it has to somehow change the way uh, we live we work where we live um and and it seems just same thing with technology it was sort of always there the ideas were there but we needed this push in order to really embrace technology uh same thing with this sort of uh with with re-examining your career people are just looking at the life and going ah you know what i've had a lot of time to to think about this and i want to change yeah, I mean, it shakes people up. It shakes up their priorities in terms of where they see themselves uh, and their careers, where they see themselves and their families, um, how they were treated by their employer over the course of this, whether they thought their employer treated them well or maybe didn't treat them all that well um, in terms of giving them the provisions to keep them safe uh, while they were working. Um, and so I, I think this type of disruption certainly is very disruptive economically. But I think even for people who've retained their jobs, um, it may well have shaken up their priorities uh, and may well have reoriented those priorities to say that, that, you know, and maybe that's what they needed was a bit of a shake up to say, you know, I really did want to be something else. I wanted to work in a different industry, uh, you know, a year's worth of on and off layoffs because of uh, ongoing lockdowns. Um, you know, as, as, as I suspect, pushed a lot of people to reevaluate those priorities, hopefully for the better. I mean, you know, if we have a better educated population, people that are happier working uh, in new jobs, I mean, that, that, that can certainly be positive in the long run. Um, and so hopefully it is positive for people that they take 
and there are, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of additional supports to become uh, retrained, for instance, in different areas uh, for employers to rehire. Um, and so hopefully people will take that opportunity in the next couple years. These supports aren't going to go on forever. Uh, but many of the you know, many of the expenditures we saw in the last federal budget are pretty time limited for the next two years. Uh, and hopefully people will take, uh, you know, governments up on those opportunities to get retrained, get new skills, uh, you know, enter new industries that they might be happier in. So how does a company prepare for this? Are they aware of this? Uh, are they concerned? Well, you know, from a company's perspective, uh, you know, most companies have done relatively well out of the pandemic. Uh, more support's gone mm. to companies than to, than to jobless Canadians. And so uh, bankruptcy rates are actually way down this year, even compared to 2019, where there wasn't a pandemic. Uh, and so companies are, are, are well positioned. I think one of the challenges will be once we start to see things reopening and people are being recalled to the office, um, recalled to workplaces like they you know, just haven't been, but that hasn't been the case since March of last year. Um, I think then we'll see people potentially saying, you know, I don't think I want to go back. And that might really push people to, to move on some of those decisions maybe that have, they've been ruminating about. And so for, for employers, um, you know, that, that maybe haven't been at full employment um, or are going to start calling people back um, to be prepared to some degree that you do want to, um, you know, that, that one of your biggest priorities is going to have to be your employees uh, and their satisfaction with coming back to work, uh, you know, that the, that the place they're coming back to, they, they feel safe in, but it's also a positive environment. I mean, certainly, well, I think a lot of workplace cultures have suffered by being remote for a year. And so it'd be very important to rebuild that, uh, but also understand that you know, there may well be people that will leave. And so, um, you know, it's going to be a time for a lot of employers of, of rehiring, of hiring, um, particularly over the summer and fall, as we hopefully move to large, you know, we've got most of the population vaccinated. And so that, you know, the immediate healthcare threat of COVID-19 ends. David McDonald with us, senior economist with the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. Coming out of a COVID-19 pandemic, has it changed the way you think about things? Perhaps where you work, a career change uh, could be happening as uh, we've had lots of time to reflect on all of this. David, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me. Bye. All right. Last week, we're uh, chatting about uh, the major announcement in uh, provincial and federal government working together. And uh, voila, the LRT is uh, back on again. And uh, a lot of people uh, excited, a lot of people not excited. Uh, Liberal MP Bob Bertina uh, says he can't defend uh, the LRT uh, decision on the funding and will not run in the next federal election as a result of that. Let's bring in Bob Bertina, former mayor of the Hamilton also a uh, liberal MP for Hamilton uh, East Stony Creek and former uh, morning show host of this uh, radio station, CHML. Bob, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, and it's kind of fun to be doing this from your house. <laughs> exactly. In all the years that you did radio, Bob, did you ever have to do it from your house? <laughs> no, I did it once. I did a traffic report because it was a blizzard from the roof of the Piggott building. <laughs> which was a complete waste of time. Couldn't see anything anyway. I just thought that would be clever, and it didn't work. But uh, no, no, I, I haven't. But it's you know, I'm looking around. These uh, colors you got—the turquoise and the mint green—they're actually they say they're coming back in style. 
<laughs> that's it. That's it. I, there's lots of people who retired from radio who said, you know, if I knew I could do that, I wouldn't have retired. I would have kept going. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about this big announcement here, Bob. A lot of people didn't see this coming. Uh, is, is the reason you're leaving because of the LRT project? Well, the project, I, I, it will be a very important uh, campaign item if, let's say, it's September, even into the spring or summer of next year, uh, the largest investment in history, the numbers are mind-boggling, uh, would certainly uh, be a point of discussion. And I couldn't, in all honesty, knock on a door and take questions about supporting that project because I... I there would be ways that I, I might be softer on it, but the way that it's come forward, the amount of money that's being bandied about, uh, and all of the money is still uh, up to up to $1.7 billion for the feds, up to one point. Ottawa's just found out they're going to be paying $130 million more million to the residential taxpayer because of that sinkhole in the front of the Rideau Center. I don't know if you remember that story or not. But uh, nobody was ever talking about who was going to pay for that until now somebody's FOI'd it. And the city of Ottawa has uh, taxpayers will pay $130 million for that sinkhole. And the city is actually suing its insurer because the insurer wouldn't insure the city for the, the damages. There's so many wild card issues on, on a huge project like this. And, and it was really upsetting I, uh, for me as well, the, having been a city councillor, Scott, that the federal government would tell the provincial government uh, that you, you match our money, and to the city, this money is only for an LRT. That was no, nothing, it was never the deal. It was always a question of would it be BRT, LRT, and then strong-leaning LRT. And then the province said, okay, you can have your billion, you pick what you want, LRTB. The federal governments do not impose projects on communities. Federal governments uh, take application from the city for a, a grant, usually that t- to the province, and then, then federal money flows through the province downwards. And so for uh, for us to say as a government, Hamilton, you can get all this money if you take it. Uh, as for LRT, but that if if you don't, you don't get anything. How you said uh, earlier, you could soften on it. What would have made you soften on it? Talk to, uh, be allowed to discuss, because I brought my objections forward many, many times uh, with no response to those specific inje- uh, objections, like cost to the local residential taxpayer, which would be my main thing. The, the, the route itself is not a transit solution for anything. It doesn't solve any problems. It's just a different way of doing it with fewer stops because there's only 17 stops and 14 kilometers. That's practically a kilometer a stop, and that'll take probably 40 bus stops out of the whole route that would have been more convenient for people. So it's just, it, as a, it's, wouldn't that be nice to have one of those? Well, yeah, maybe. Do we need it? No. That being said, Bob, this has been, you know, talked about for a bazillion years, you know, uh, and and we have finally got to where we are. I mean, it's it's obvious you've never been a a supporter uh of of the project, but but what's different here? What's different now? Because of the imposition by the federal government of 
an unbelievably amount, a large amount of money suddenly appearing out of nowhere in a, a pandemic, post-pandemic scenario where our uh, debt is, you know, astronomical. And coming from a family of immigrants, we always lived within our means. And I, I did that as mayor. You know, we, uh, the average increase was about 1.3% over my four years. Uh, it's two-ish now. This would be 4 to 5% based on the $30 million a year operation and maintenance, plus any other number of things. All these projects have cost overruns and arguments about who's going to pay, like the city. At the end of the day, but at the end of the day, Bob, for you, it's just not the project for the city. I mean, you know, we can split here's all, all, you know, split through what all the different reasons you have for, but this just is not the project you think the city should be building. Is that, is that accurate? Circumstances. No. uh, Well, what other circumstances would make it? feasible because again now you've got you know i mean this is this has been a constant debate about who pays for what the city wants it for free obviously nothing's for free but we've got uh you know 1.7 from each of the provinces and the and the feds when is the time right for this well it's never the right time because in 2007 when the plans first came out i went right to the engineering staff jill steven who's now in niagara and i said jill uh love uh you know having modern uh, uh, LRT, but this not here. The the transit issues for Hamilton are up the mountain, down the mountain. And I even produced a map saying, offering a suggestion as to what my alternative would be. The fix was in from the very beginning that they would take the King Street route, which is the highest revenue earner for the HSR. That money will be lost because the fare box will go to the consortium. And the LRT unbelievably does not connect to a go station. Scott, we need all day go service way more than getting on a streetcar to go down King street. We have everybody in uh, houses are selling like crazy in my neighborhood and mostly to young Toronto couples. Now what's, if you live downtown in a condo or a house, where are you going on that streetcar? No. no, I mean, that was obviously, uh, you know, a, a bone of contention with me because initially it was supposed to be a spur line that linked it to uh, the GO system. But they say that eventually uh, there'll be some sort of transportation back and forth th- linking it to that station, whether so it's get uh, got a track on it. or and on, You have to change uh, modes. You have to get out of your car, get on the LRT, go downtown and then uh, get on a shuttle bus. What kind of transit is that? Well, you know, if there was an intersection there, you'd probably have to get off and switch trains to go down south to a link anyway. I mean, you know, uh, I, I agree. I, the connectivity to the go is, you know, is a, is a strong argument. Um, but again, you know, as that demand increases, I'm sure that will that will be added to it. Uh, yeah, so are you going to run at Aldershot and Burlington and see the development that's around those go stations? It's enormous. And well, we again, have- you know, again, I think those are two different discussions. I think lots of people would like to see all day uh, and continuous uh, go train service, but again, yeah. uh, that's a different issue than an LRT in in Hamilton. Are you going to run again and and keep talking about this? Well, I'm not running uh, federally again. Uh, I've, what about uh, within the city? Well, I I don't know that the issue for me right now is my disappointment at how this all unrolled and where all this money's coming from and the demand on the city to build an LRT when maybe council has other thoughts. It's up to council. And I always, 
told my colleagues that. I said, look, I'll support the government, uh, depending on what council, you know, council wants, and we'll help fund it. But we're not saying, what would you like? We'll help you fund it. We're saying, we're making this money available only for LRT. And too bad for you. You better tell your taxpayers uh, they're going to be paying a lot more money. Okay, let me come at you from a devil's advocate here, Bob, because, you know, we we can look at Hamilton projects and it's always one step forward, two steps back, whether it's the link, the Red Hill, uh, the stadium debate. And here we are having the same sort of thing with LRT. What would you say to the people that are just saying, get her done? Well, they're not thinking seriously. This business of get her done doesn't mean a thing. What are the implications for the city? What are the financial implications? What does it do as a transit system? It's a joke to, to, to go where? We're building condos downtown. And there are about 20,000, maybe a little more people who work in the downtown core, mostly in the financial sector. There's all kinds of, you know, uh, banks, uh, credit unions, real estate offices, so on. I don't think they live along that route. I think they probably live in Ancaster, Dundas, the mountain, far into Stony Creek. Uh, maybe a few of them do. So who's all coming downtown uh, on an LRT when you've got a service that's available anywhere? It doesn't do anything, Scott. It's just, well, Portland's got one. Well, go to Buffalo and find out what happened to their LRT. <laughs> All right. Bob Bertina has been with us, former mayor of the city of Hamilton, liberal MP for Hamilton East uh, Stony Creek, uh, can't defend the LRT funding and has decided that he will not run in the next federal election. Bob, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Nice wallpaper, too. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks, dude. All right. It's the wood paneling. You can get wallpaper now that actually looks like 1970s uh, paneling. It's beautiful. Thanks, Bob. Take care. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Alan has, he says, I agree with Bob. All his points are valid. $30 million costs to run it from day one. What about year 15 or 20? We need to connect to GO stations for sure. All good points. I agree with the GO station, and I had that discussion many times on the station over uh, the years. Uh, we'll see what happens with that and what the, so- the so-called um, spur link will look like. Uh, also, Jimmy comments, uh, sorry, Jimmy commends Bob, thinks he speaks for the youth of the city and wants Bob back in the mayor's office. Uh, to which Dan says, oh, my God, this is awkward. No idea. What a mess. What a waste of a guest. Sour grapes. Uh, because he was left out of the conversation. That was another point that, you know, we had Philomena Tassi, uh, another MP from Hamilton on actually the show, on the show, actually talking about, uh, the announcement itself. So, um, obviously she doesn't feel that, that she was out of the loop, but, uh, clearly Bob does. Let's bring in another former mayor of Hamilton. Do you all, do, do you mayors all get together and have like a former mayor's lunch at all, Larry? <laughs> no, but that's a great idea. I'll get if together you, and... and listen. They're, they're all cheap. All those former mayors. So <laughs> we, need, we need we need you to fund it. Yeah, they. Everybody tries to skip out on the bill. You don't want to be the last guy at the table. That's for sure. Oh my, Larry Danny with us, former mayor of Hamilton. Uh, your thoughts on Bob Bertina saying that well, it's not going to run in the next federal election? Can't defend the LRT funding. We just had him on. Uh, obviously, Bob's never been a supporter of the LRT. I didn't hear a lot different than than what we've heard in the past uh, from him on that. Other than you know the the big backroom deal that went on. What are your thoughts? 
Well, so I would start by then I heard the the uh, the interview. Um, and he's, you know, his charming self and likes telling stories and um, historical stories about Hamilton. I think that's his strength, quite frankly. Um, let me start by saying he did the honorable thing. If you can't support a uh, an agenda, uh, then rather than, you know, keeping your head down and, huh. and harboring um, some ill will towards the party you're supposed to be a, a team member, of um then uh, he backed out and said no i can't support this agenda so i'm gone um so so i give him credit for that but that's about it um i i i was really saddened more than anything else to hear his comments um i was saddened because here is a former mayor current mp my mp in fact who is saying who's going to go downtown Who's going to come yeah. to our downtown? And and he exuded a um, a sad um, a lack of support for a core uh, in which I think he still lives, by the way, and was a representative of during his time as a member of council, and then of course as mayor as well. So it wasn't a vote of uh, confidence and support for the heart of our city, for the downtown. And also, I was saddened by the fact that he was bemoaning the fact that Hamilton is going to get this huge investment by the feds in the province, and I agree, it's a sizable investment. Um, you know, where's the money going to come from? What's it going to do? Didn't say anything about the fact that Toronto is getting $9 billion for mm. transit projects. Didn't hear him complain about that, but he complained about the fact that the city that he represents is getting an investment by levels of government when in fact we should have been getting investments all along. I think that's a point of celebration, not a point of criticism. And to hear our MP criticizing that, uh, it saddens me. Um, uh, the one... also... No, go ahead, go ahead. Well, there are so many points that one could, could you know, challenge Mr. Bertino on not the least of which is the fact that he was the mayor when council asked the province to foot the entire bill. He was the mayor who could have influenced that decision. If he thinks it's a bad decision now, why didn't he think it was a bad decision then? And if he thought it was a bad decision then, why did he have no influence on a council that made a different decision from the one that he was espousing? He was, he had the bully pulpit of the mayoralty in order to achieve a different end. I also agree with him on a number of other points in terms of connectivity to go, yeah. in terms of connectivity to other transit systems, but he's seeing this, I think, as a standalone item when it's an interconnected transit system that eventually will play out, and you got to start somewhere, and they're starting with a significant piece right now. So, they're, you know, I, I think he's missing the boat on on, on all of that, um, uh, you know, not, not the least of which is, is the economic uplift, the fact that uh, council has the option of, uh, of charging more development-related, uh, LRT development-related projects that will help fund some of the shortfall that he talks about. Uh, so, it, I mean, it just um, seems to replay 
um, the mayoralty election, the last mayoralty election, where he sided with, um, you know, Vito's Grow, who was running against this train. It seems to be another attempt to stop this train. And even, you know, the, the sort of allusion to running again uh, is part of that. And I think that there are sufficient forces that are lining up to occupy other seats. I wouldn't be surprised to see some of the anti-LRT folks now try to fill the vacuum in Stony Creek or the vacuum in the other empty riding in Flamborough, Glanbrook as well, where David Sweet is retiring. It seems like we're doing what Hamilton does at its worst, which is hedge on making important decisions that keeps the city from moving forward. We had this debate for 54 years on the Red Hill, and we don't want to have another 54-year debate on a transit project, for heaven's sake. And let's not forget uh, the stadium, too. Uh, Larry Deani with us, former mayor of Hamilton, uh, and talking about all things LRT, and, of course, MP uh, Bertina uh, stepping away from his uh, from running for re-election in the next election, saying he can't defend uh, LRT. Is this movement still alive, do you think, Larry? Is there going to still put a stick in the spokes here? Well, uh, clearly this is, this is but one action. I think we're going to see a few other uh, shoes drop uh, before this is done. Um, I, it only increases the pressure on council to make its decisions sooner rather than later. Take the vote, get this show on the road in terms of its implementation. Um, the province, I know, has to release more documents around who pays for what in terms of life cycle costs and so on. I think people need to step this up. Otherwise, inertia, if there's inertia, yep. the opposition will fill that void and that would be bad for the city. Larry Deani, former mayor of the city of Hamilton. Larry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you.